The text for our sermon this morning is Hebrews chapter 11, verses 30 through 40. Hebrews 11, 30 through 40. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. By faith, the Rahab harlot did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourging jests and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. This time I want to call the kids down front for their children's sermon. Well, the verses that we just read tell us some stories of men that we might not know about. The people listed here are some of the forgotten heroes of the Bible. A few of the people referred to aren't even mentioned by name. Now, we can guess who they are by the other information that we have, but I want to tell you about one of these men because his example or his faith is an example for us in a way that looks different from the other people in this chapter that we would think of as heroes. The man I want you to notice is Samson. Samson was a great hero of the church in the days before Israel had a king. You may know about him as a great strong man. Now the Bible doesn't tell us what Samson looked like, so we don't know if he was a big man or if he was just uh, ordinary looking. I think he was probably pretty normal looking because whenever he did something amazing, the Bible always says first, the Spirit of God came upon him mightily. Well, let me tell you a couple of stories about Samson. One time, he caught 300 foxes. Catching one is a pretty big deal, I think, but catching 300, that's amazing. And it wasn't just that he caught 300 foxes. He caught 300 foxes, and then he tied them together two by two at their tails with a torch in between them. When he lit the torches, you could be sure that those foxes panicked and ran all over the place. Well, Samson lit the torches and then set the foxes loose in the fields of the Philistines, who were the church's enemies. Back then, that would have been like burning down the store, because now these people would have no place to get more food. One time, Samson was hiding in a city, and late at night, his enemies found out he was there. So they decided they would come to the, to the outskirts of the city early in the morning and attack him by surprise. Well, Samson woke up at midnight, and he went out to the edge of the city. Now, many cities back then had great big, thick, high walls around them with giant gates. Samson walked up to the gates, easily as big as a house, huge gates, and he yanked the gates right out of the ground, threw them up on his shoulders, and then carried them to the top of the hill out in front of the city. 
So when everyone woke up in the morning, the city gates were up on top of this hill a couple of miles away. Once, a thousand men attacked Samson. He wasn't ready for a fight. He was just walking along the road. And when they attacked him, he was unarmed. He didn't have a spear, a sword, bow and arrow, nothing. But as he was standing there, he noticed a donkey, a dead donkey, whose jawbone was loose. And so he picked up that jawbone, and with that jawbone, he killed a thousand soldiers. So you can imagine that Samson was the most famous man around. One day, he was tricked, captured, he had his eyes plucked out, and then he was put into a mill to grind corn like a cow. Overnight, Samson went from being the most famous and feared man in the country to being a forgotten nobody. But the Bible makes sure that we realize that he was a servant of God. You know, when the enemy caught him, they all had a big laugh at the great hero who was now a great zero. But the Bible tells us that even though he experienced this, he was still great in God's eyes. In fact, our verses tell us that men like Samson were men of whom the world was not worthy. You know, we're often impressed with what? Movie stars, singers, football players, other celebrities. But these people don't do anything for God's people. They do nothing for the church that is of real value. But the most hated, ignored, and forgotten child of God is greater in God's eyes than all the celebrities in the world put together. You know, last week we read that Jesus said, what profit will it be for a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Well, men like Samson realized how valuable their souls were, and that's why they were willing to suffer embarrassment and shame for Jesus and his church. I will pray, and then you can return to your seats. God, who did speak of old and of the fathers by the prophets, and has spoken us into these last days by thy Son, speak to us now in thy holy word. Make our hearts to be as good and prepared soil for the good seed of thy kingdom. Teach us to know thy will and to do it in all things. May thy Holy Spirit be with us now as a spirit of light and life. May Christ be glorified in the preaching of his gospel this day. And may grace and peace be multiplied unto us all through the knowledge of thee and of Jesus our Lord. For his name's sake we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to focus our attention on that phrase, of whom the world was not worthy. In verse 38. And so the thesis statement of our sermon this morning will be that the lowliest child of God is worth more than the greatest hero of the world. To demonstrate this, we'll use a few examples that our text supplies. There are three men our text either mentions or alludes to that will serve as our examples this morning. And these three men are Samson, the prophet Isaiah, and the high priest, Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada. So first of all, Samson. Samson is one of the most puzzling men in Scripture. I tend to think he always gets a bad rap. It's not to say that he wasn't a weak and sinful servant of God, but he was without a doubt a servant of God. One thing you'll notice about Samson as you read the account of his life in Judges 13 through 16 is that though he was weak and sinful, 
he was always aware of his status as a servant of the Lord. He epitomizes faith by never relying on his own righteousness, but always trusting with infant-like confidence in the covenant of God. I'll give you a couple of examples. In Judges 14, we read the story of Samson's abortive wedding. He's supposed to marry a girl, a Philistine girl from Timnath. And as Samson is on the way to his future in-law's house for the traditional party, he gets attacked by a lion, which he kills with his bare hands. A couple of days later, as he's passing the same way, he comes upon the lion carcass and notices that bees have made a hive in it. He stoops down and collects some honey. Now, there are two important things here. Samson was a Nazarite. He was under a special vow to God. And part of the requirements of being a Nazarite were special caution about coming into contact with death and special regard to what one ate. Samson, in this case, Samson broke both rules. He came into physical contact with death, with the corpse of that lion, which was enough to ceremonially defile him. But on top of that, he ate the honey that came from the carcass, which was therefore unclean as well. Now, the point of the lion honey story is that during the wedding festivities, Samson uses this event as a riddle. His future bride pesters him nonstop for seven days to give her the, to give her the answer to the riddle. When he finally relents, she tells the Philistines, and they solve his riddle. Samson storms off in anger, goes out and kills 30 Philistines, and then goes home dejected. Because of this, the girl's father assumes that the whole thing was a bust and kind of quietly marries the daughter off to someone else. Well, Samson, unaware of this, of course, decides to go visit his wife and finds out that the whole thing has gone down the drain and through a series, of, a series of very odd events, leads him to killing a thousand Philistine soldiers. In Judges 15, we read the account as follows. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting against him. Then the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became like flax that is burned with fire, and his bonds broke loose from his hands. He found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, reached out his hand and took it, and killed a thousand men with it. Then Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have slain a thousand men. And so it was, when he had finished speaking, that he threw the jawbone from his hand and called that place Ramoth-Lehi. Then he became very thirsty. So he cried out to the Lord and said, you have given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant, and now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hand of the uncircumcised? So God split the hollow place that is in Lehi, and water came out, and he drank, and his spirit returned, and he was revived. I want you to notice how contact with death comes into play again. And I'm not referring to him killing the thousand Philistines either. I'm talking about that jawbone of the donkey. Judges tells us that the donkey was freshly dead. So again, Samson has violated the terms of his Nazarite vow. It seems like every important act of his military career brings him into conflict with his own status as a Nazarite. 
but listen to him pray. You have given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant. And now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Now that term uncircumcised, that was the strongest term at a word at the church's disposal for describing those outside of God's covenant. You know, Jesus instituted baptism in place of circumcision. So change the word and Samson is saying, shall I fall into the hands of these unbaptized? So you see, the worst thing that Samson could imagine about a man was that he was outside of God's covenant. It shows us the true character and strength of Samson's faith, despite the many outward weaknesses of his character. That which defined a man in Samson's eyes was whether or not he was in covenant with God. Fast forward a few hundred years when David hears Goliath taunting the armies of God, and what does he say? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should challenge the armies of God? The same language of Samson. Now, at the end of his life, Samson has been reduced to a shell of his former self. At one time, he was easily the most feared man in Canaan. But now, he has been captured, shaved, blinded, and is grinding at the mill like a cow. And in the midst of such apparent failure and shame, he calls out to the Lord, Oh, Lord God, remember me, I pray. Strengthen me, I pray. Just this once, O oh God, that I may with one blow take vengeance on the Philistines for my two eyes. And so in his death, he wages an act of war upon the Philistines that kills more of them by that one act than all of the heroic deeds during the 20 years that he served the church as a judge. But you see, Samson is truly a man of faith, weak, frail, and fickle though he was. When the chips were down, he never batted an eye to pray to God and plead God's faithfulness. He was self-aware enough to know that he didn't dare plead his own worth. By faith, our text tells us, Samson served his generation by the will of God, though he was outwardly a total, abject failure, yet his name has gone down in the annals of sacred history as one of the great ones. By faith, Samson died under the rubble of a Philistine temple. Our second example is that of the great prophet Isaiah. Isaiah is a prophet so profound that he could easily be classed as the fifth evangelist. He served God's people faithfully under several kings. His early ministry, according to Isaiah 8.14, was to both houses of Israel. Later on, we find him ministering during the days of Hezekiah, during the siege of Jerusalem, Assyrian siege of Jerusalem in 701 B.C. We read about this in Isaiah 37. During Hezekiah's reign, following a great vision, Isaiah writes the second half of his prophecies, the markers that we have through the history of his book tell us that his, his ministry may have lasted as long as 55 years. You would be hard-pressed to find anyone of whom you could say that he served his generation like Isaiah. During the 50 years of Isaiah's ministry, you knew that there was a man 
who waited on the Lord. There was a man who was dead serious about God's claims on his church. There was a man who would not flinch, who would not balk at proclaiming the whole counsel of God. Now, men like this are indispensable. The well-being and future success of the church often hangs on the work of such men. They are there to faithfully proclaim the truth and fearlessly lead the way. But the truth is, men like this are generally not appreciated during their own lifetimes. When you read the books of the prophets, you will frequently find them complaining to the Lord about the sheer thanklessness of their work. Now, ideally, no one should be more loved and welcomed than a prophet. This is a man specially gifted and commissioned by God to declare and explain his law. Prophets, now, they were not primarily engaged in foretelling the future, though they occasionally did that. They were busy forthtelling God's will. They preached the law of God and explained its application to any and all situations that God's people found themselves in. It has rightly been said that the books of the prophets are merely commentary on the Ten Commandments. It takes a bold man to toe the line and never shirk from declaring God's will. And of the great, faithful, fearless, and wise prophets of God, there was no one like Isaiah. Now, the Bible doesn't give us this exact information. We draw it from the annals of history. The Jewish historian Josephus writes of Isaiah that he was martyred, murdered, during the reign of King Manasseh. Manasseh's reign was the worst and longest, probably worst because longest, of any evil king in Judah. Now, very late in his life, Manasseh repented and returned to the Lord. In fact, his story is one of the most beautiful examples of God's faithfulness to his covenant that can be found in the scriptures. But the beauty of the man's later conversion doesn't undo all of the evil that he did before he repented. And one of the greatest acts of evil Manasseh committed was the killing of the prophet Isaiah. Josephus records that Isaiah was placed inside of a hollowed-out tree trunk, and then that trunk was sawn in half. You'll notice our text speaks of one who was sawn in half. As I said earlier, the story is not recorded in Scripture. It comes through the annals of history, but it is a creditable account, and there's no one else in Scripture about whom there exists such a story, and therefore I give credence to it. By faith, Isaiah appears to be a total, absolute failure. He preaches and proclaims God's word for over 50 years, and the thanks he gets for his inestimable service to the church of Christ is that he gets killed in a most barbaric and cruel way. By faith, he is sawn in half. The third man I want to look at is Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada. Jehoiada was an important person in the history of the church. Jehoiada was high priest. Second, uh, Second Kings chapter 11, we read how the king Ahaziah died, and his mother... Athaliah, who was the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, assassinated the whole royal family of Judah. She was like the evil stepmother in the European myths. She dreamed of reigning forever without rival. What she didn't know is that her plan, her plot, had been discovered. Jehoiada's wife was the king's sister. 
she snuck into the palace and rescued the king's son, a little baby boy named Joash. And for about six years, Joash was hid in the temple. After six years, Jehoiada brought out the little boy king and had him crowned publicly. The kingdom was finally returned to the rightful heir. Jehoiada put his life in grave danger to serve the church. Now, the relationship between the boy king Joash and Jehoiada was a very strange relationship. Jehoiada was almost a father to Joash. He was actually his uncle. He was very much like a father, but in many ways, he was more like a mentor. I think if I could borrow an example from our nation's history, I would liken them to George Washington and Alexander Hamilton. If you know anything about Hamilton, you'll know he was an incredibly impulsive man. Hamilton lived in the world of classic fiction. He believed in honor, honor portrayed in the great classics. So he was ready at the drop of a hat to duel to defend his honor. Throughout their careers as diplomats, Washington bailed Hamilton out of trouble more than once. In fact, I think there's no doubt that Hamilton would have been killed many times had it not been for Washington coming to his rescue. We know from history that soon after Washington died and was no longer there to stand guard over the impetuous Hamilton, Hamilton went and shot his mouth off, challenged Aaron Burr to a duel, and got shot dead in the street. Similarly, King Joash, impetuous and impulsive, he was always successfully reined in by Jehoiada. But the fateful day came when Jehoiada died, and his son Zechariah succeeded him as high priest, and things went downhill overnight. I think we need to recognize, too, that Zechariah and Joash grew up together. They were cousins. Jehoiada was like a father to Joash, but he was a father to Zechariah. And it's this closeness, not to mention the debt of gratitude Joash owed to their family, that makes his behavior all the more despicable. In 2 Chronicles 24, we read how the king and the people fell instantly into apostasy the second Jehoiada died. Zechariah, as the Lord's spokesman, warned the people in the name of God. But we read the people conspired against him, and at the command of the king, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. 2 Chronicles 24, 22 reads, Thus Joash the king did not remember the kindness which Jehoiada his father had done to him, but killed his son. And as he died, he said, The Lord look upon it and repay. This is a most tragic turn of events. It is pure ugliness and evil. But I want you to notice a couple of important things. A, Zechariah is held up to us in Scripture as a model of saving faith. It was by faith that he warned the church of the danger of apostasy. And B, he endured the treacherous, treasonous behavior of a childhood friend. And he was faithful to death for the cause of Christ's church. So you see, Hebrews 11 isn't just a litany of heroic exploits. It's also a list of what we would consider, generally consider, failures. Now, I've placed a lot of stress on that fact, haven't I? And the reason for emphasizing this is the way that Paul describes these men. Let's reread the passage. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. 
They were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. The world looks at the righteous and believes that they are not worthy to live in the world, but God declares that the world is not worthy of them. The lowliest, most insignificant saint who has ever labored in obscurity is greater in the eyes of heaven than the richest, most powerful, influential mover and shaker who has ever lived. On judgment day, countless, nameless, faceless nobodies who have been mocked into the corner are going to be recognized in the presence of God while billionaire tycoons, philanthropists, venture capitalists, and CEOs are going to be consigned to the deepest, darkest, blackest, burningest corners of hell. At least we know the names of Samson, Isaiah, and Zechariah. There are countless masses of unsung heroes who have served Christ faithfully through the centuries, who will remain unknown until Judgment Day, when the secrets of all men will be made known. And so our text tells us that God has provided some better things for them. The great judgment will square all accounts. These nobodies who were mocked, ridiculed, belittled, or worse, ignored during their lifetimes, they will be vindicated by God before all mankind. And all men will be made to feel the truth that the world was not worthy of them. God's valuation of things is different than ours. When you're tempted to think that your life serves no great world-shaping purpose, just remember that the pages of history are littered with nameless rabble of whom the world was not worthy. And also recall that the pages of history are overloaded with the names and exploits of men who will be cast into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. We should also remember that we have the advantage of seeing the unfolding of history. Hindsight is 2020. We not only look back on the coming of Christ in fulfillment of all the great prophecies of Scripture, but we look back on the lives of these men and we can see what they never did. Verses 39 and 40 of our text read, And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Remember back in verse 2 of chapter 11, we read, By faith the elders obtained a good testimony. Their good testimony consists largely in the fact that they trusted in God despite their senses, that the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. We do, of course, realize that these men lived and died in the hopes of things they never saw come to fruition. In some cases, like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the hope was the establishing of a family, a line through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. In some cases, like Joshua and the judges, the hope was that Israel would eventually conquer the whole land of Canaan and the people would have rest from their enemies. In some cases, like Samuel and David, the hope was that the kingdom would be established in the family of David so that the march toward Christ could begin. In some cases, like Daniel, the hope was a return to the promised land after 70 years in exile. But in all the cases, the true hope was the coming of Christ to live and die and resurrect 
for the forgiveness, justification, sanctification, and glorification of God's people. All the Old Testament saints died in faith without having seen this. Now, they saw it by faith. The scripture says they saw it from a distance. And because they saw it, they confessed that they were pilgrims on this earth. They all hitched their wagon to the promise of God to Abraham that he would be the heir of the whole world in the great resurrection state. You know, sometimes the stories of the Bible seem odd, dated, unusual. But they are all recorded for our advantage because we live by the very same faith. Since our advantages with the better things God has provided for us are so much beyond theirs, so should our obedience of faith, patience, hope, labor of love be greater. We need to acknowledge that unless we get the true faith these believers have, they will rise up and condemn us at the last day. I mean, how can you stand before God with a life full of doubts when you have the witness of a man like Samson, who despite all the disadvantages under which he lived, always recognized that he was a servant of God for the benefit of the church? When we have the benefit of two millennia of church history under our belt, how can we live with a less bold, strong, and robust faith than the heroes of Hebrews 11? Now let's ask an important question. What did they obtain by their faith? Well, our text tells us that they obtained a commendation from God, the true judge of character. And the commendation is that the world was not worthy of them. The world did not deserve the blessings that it received through the ministry of these men. Our text tells us that they obtained a good report of having their names enlisted on this roll. God is not ashamed to be called their God and to have the fate of his church tied up with their names and exploits. They received an interest in the promise even though they did not have full possession of it. This doesn't mean that they haven't received it now. They have. They've all entered the bliss of heaven from which they have witnessed Christ fulfill all the covenant promises. But they live for centuries and centuries, even in heaven, in anticipation. Their lives serve us now as an example because they had the types, not the antitypes. They had the shadows, not the substance. And yet under this imperfect dispensation, they had true faith. And so Paul appeals to their faith as an example to provoke Christians to holy emulation. That we shouldn't let ourselves be outdone and outclassed by people who are far less equipped than we are. The close of this chapter tells its readers that God has provided some better things for us. And therefore we can conclude that God expects at least as good things from us since we have in substance what the Old Testament saints only had in shadow. Without the gospel church, the Jewish church would have remained in an incomplete state. And the Holy Spirit assumes that this logic will prevail upon us. Now let's close by rereading verses 39 and 40. And all these, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. God having provided some better things for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Let me make a few observations. First of all, Paul turns back to verse 2, doesn't he? By faith, the elders retain, uh, obtained a good report. Those biographies of faith are a demonstration proved beyond contradiction. 
Secondly, while the testimony to their faithfulness is abundant, it's nevertheless true that they fell short of the promise. Now, the word promise, of course, refers objectively to the thing promised. They all received the promise subjectively. That is, they grasped the faithfulness of God. For faith is impossible except where the truth is pledged in a promise or in a command that implies a promise. But there still is a promise that they did not receive. Namely, the matter of the promise. The great object held up to the eyes of their faith. The incarnation of the Son of God. They saw it from a distance and rested on it. But they did not receive it as a present possession. Thirdly, this deficiency is made up to us, to whom the gospel is preached as well as unto them. This is the better thing that the Lord has reserved for us under the new covenant. Until Christ should come in fact and obey, suffer, and die, and rise from the dead, the covenant of our redemption could not be sealed. A promise that doesn't rest on the covenant sealed by the blood of the testator can never make the inheritance sure. And lastly, without this better thing given to us, they could not be made perfect. Now that word made perfect, it's the same word that we have in Hebrews 2.10. It's the same word Christ spoke dying on the cross. It is finished. And this is the safeguard against the temptation to return to the old ways. Those old ways were the shadow, but in Christ we have the substance. Let us pray.